Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world. Stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence. Powered by the research of Talkers Magazine, the national conversation. It's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, March 21st through Friday, March 25th, 2022. It was a week of war and heightened global tension, confirmation hearings, a disturbing new coronavirus strain, and high prices at the pump. We're about to embark on a powerful hour of Black Belt Talk Radio, during which your tolerance for hearing different but legitimate points of view will be tested. We've got lefties, righties, and fence-sitters. Please don't get angry. Just listen closely and while doing so, maintain a degree of educated skepticism, regardless of whether or not you agree. We'll be joined by Kevin Casey in Springfield, Massachusetts with the Talkers Top 10 Stories of the Week, Jennifer Horn in Los Angeles on California Pump Pain, Martha Zoller in North Georgia on the Brown-Jackson Supreme Court hearings, Victoria Jones in Washington, D.C. on the NATO summit, and an exclusive report from Ivan Pentrakov on the ground in Western Ukraine. Ukraine, an impressive array of influential yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices sharing their observations and the feelings of their target constituents with whom they do a daily dance of affirmation in a fragmented, noisy world where we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Wrap, heard coast to coast and around the world on great radio stations across the U.S. and the U.K. The past week's hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media. Information is gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. Okay, here we go. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America this past week. Thank you, Michael. At number 10, the death of Madeleine Albright tied with growing excitement in the science community over the James Webb Space Telescope. The nation was saddened this week by the death of the first woman Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, at the age of 84. She served under the administration of Bill Clinton and was considered an arch-nemesis of Vladimir Putin. She warned for years that Putin presented a grave danger to peace. On the science front, the long-awaited James Webb Space Telescope continued to unfold in orbit, and as engineers on Earth are making the necessary calibrations to bring it into focus, amazing photographs of faint stars and distant galaxies have already begun to emerge. This amazing piece of advanced and expensive technology is going to be a game-changer in humanity's quest to understand the universe and perhaps find signs of life on exoplanets. Stay tuned. At number nine this week, big tech and social media. A week doesn't pass without big tech being in the national conversation, having to do with monopolies, privacy, free speech, and social impact. Unfortunately, the negative impact social media is having on our children continues to be a growing concern for parents and psychologists alike. At number eight, the January 6th committee tied with ongoing investigations into Donald Trump. The spotlight this week has been on Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, 
The committee has in its possession 29 text messages between her and former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, revealing her participation in the pro-Trump rally that preceded the U.S. Capitol attack and her pleas to Meadows to continue the fight to overturn the election results. Thomas denies any role in organizing the January 6th attack. Meantime, pressure on the former president continues to mount as Mark Pomerantz, a New York Southern District prosecutor who'd been leading a criminal investigation into Donald Trump before quitting last month, said that he believes the former president is guilty of numerous felony violations, and he disagreed with Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg decision not to seek an indictment. Trump calls the investigation a witch hunt. At number seven, partisan politics tied with the 2022 and 2024 elections. The midterm election of 2022 is off and running with both parties jockeying for control of the House and Senate this coming November. Simultaneously, the race for the White House in 2024 is also very much a part of the national conversation, with a focus remaining on Donald Trump's role in GOP politics as he continues to promote rallies and hint strongly at running again. At number six, COVID-19. Although stats in the U.S. are favorable and mandates continue to be rolled back, the potential rise of variants continues to worry health officials around the country who say we are not out of the woods yet. Experts are carefully watching BA2, a subvariant of Omicron, which is leading to a new wave of COVID-19 infections across Europe. Cases in the United Kingdom, Germany, the Netherlands, and other countries are on the rise, driven by this contagious strain. At number five, a three-way tie between the Supreme Court hearings, race relations, and crime. The Senate Judiciary Committee held televised confirmation hearings this week for President Biden's nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to fill the current vacancy on the United States Supreme Court. And it was a showcase for politicians from both parties to show... Well, their partisanship. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell announced his opposition to the choice, citing Judge Brown Jackson's sentencing decisions as well as her basic judicial philosophy. He warned that she would engage in judicial activism. He stated, it's a recipe for courts to wander into policymaking and prevent healthy democratic compromise. This is the misunderstanding of the separation of powers that I've spent my entire career fighting against. I will vote against this nominee. At number four this week, the economy and gas prices. Although prices at the gas pump eased off a bit this week, they are still uncomfortably high. Inflation, supply chain breakdowns, and a general shortage of labor continue to plague the American economy, attributed to a combination of factors, including the economic war with Russia and the negative impact of the pandemic and its ensuing shutdowns. At number three, U.S. relations with China and Russia, along with North Korea missile tests. A new version of the Cold War is upon us, with enormous intrigue, posturing, and brinksmanship marking the tenuous relationship between America and the emerging alliance between China and Russia. Where's James Bond when we need him? Meantime, North Korea took advantage of the distraction and shot off a test of its largest, monster-sized intercontinental ballistic missile. What a pain in the butt. At number two, President Biden goes to the NATO summit. 
The President of the United States affirmed American leadership of NATO this week at a hastily organized, urgent meeting of the Western allies in Brussels in a rare display of unity against Russia that hasn't existed since the Cold War. It appears Vladimir Putin underestimated the resolve of the United States and NATO to stand up against the Russian war machine as the Western nations drew upon memories of Adolf Hitler and the atrocities of World War II. And at number one this week, the Russia-Ukraine war. The war grinds on into its fifth week. And the world holds its breath as a global crisis of enormous proportions continues to dramatically unfold. Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. The Russian invasion of its neighbor and former Soviet satellite Ukraine has remained at the top of the Talkers chart for the fourth week in a row as the bloody war grinds on into its fifth week. The war is adding fuel to the runaway inflation afflicting the American economy. We're joined now by one of the major voices in L.A. Talk Radio, the morning co-host with Grant Stitchfield of KRLA AM 870, The Answer, Talker's heavy hundred member, Jennifer Horn. You know, Michael, it's so great to be with you. And I just filled up my tank yesterday, actually, and I paid $6.40 a gallon for regular gasoline. Outrageous. Not even the fancy stuff, not premium, but just regular old 87 and $6.40. And You know, my commute, like many people who live in Southern California, it's a lot different than more condensed cities like like New York, where you can use public transportation. That's really not an option for me. Mm -hmm. I could use a bus, but I'd have to add another two and a half hours to my commute with all of the changes and the transfers. And it's just really not a viable option. Plus, it's not very safe in California. Crime rates have been going up. So, it's, it's rough, and there are a lot of commuters like me who commute on average about 60 miles a day. And our governor, and it's really interesting, has, has offered, Gavin Newsom has offered a solution of sorts. To me, it seems that the most reasonable thing would to be to put a moratorium on our gas tax, which is about a dollar just by itself. Depending on the county, it can even be a little higher than that but at least a dollar at the state level for gas taxes in the state of California. So you're thinking off the top, if you just put a moratorium on that for three months or maybe six months, you're giving instant relief to the people who need it most, those people who are commuting. But the governor came out this week and said instead that he wanted to give $400 debit cards to everybody who has a registered car in the state of California. Now, that's fine, but he's using the money that he calls part of our surplus, which a whole other story is really not a surplus if you count our unfunded pension liabilities in the state. He wants to use that money to give people debit cards. And uh, look, it's it's nice. It's a half a point for trying to, to help people in California. I'll give him that. But you're sending now to you're sending money, $400 of taxpayer money to the tune of $11 billion total to people who maybe aren't commuting every day, maybe to people who have cars that are up on blocks in their exactly. front yard. Exactly. You know, And then people like me, you know, and maybe people who are commuting five or 10 miles a day don't need $400 a year, but someone like me or or other people that I know that are commuting 60 miles a day, well, we're going to, $400 is just a drop in the bucket. So it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. No, and, and, and it's an extra level of uh, bureaucracy and confusion. It's so much easier just cut the tax, you know. Uh, yeah, at per- the point of sale exactly. rather than having to offer the refund. And, you know, I was thinking about why he does that. And I always try to do this when I'm thinking about politicians on my side of the aisle or on the other side of the aisle. And I really think it has to do with him not wanting to cut revenues. One of the things that Gavin Newsom loves to crow about 
is this, and it's pretty dishonest, actually. It's kind of a voodoo economic system here in California where he says that we have a surplus. If you count the unfunded pension liabilities, we don't. We're actually in debt in the state. We're in the red. But I think he doesn't want to lose that revenue in the, in the form of the gas tax. So he would rather take $11 billion out of his so-called surplus rather than stop his, his money coming into the government, into Sacramento, so that next year he can talk about a surplus again. Yeah. A lot of CEOs of corporations that are um, floundering have that um, technique as well. They don't want mm-hmm. to stop revenue because they, the revenue uh, stands right out there at the top of the ledger. Here's how much money we take in. And, That's um, right. And, and, and it's, I guess he's, um, it's a similar syndrome to, um, to, to these guys that are running companies way beyond. You know, they're too big to fail, but are failing terribly. Um, so, so it's six bucks plus a gallon, a full tank, pretty shocking when you see it go up to the $70 a tank, $75 a tank or whatever it is. I'm my, Forgive my math, but... Um, no, it's it, about, it was about $80 for me to fill up my my SUV. And that's, you, you think about that, you think about all the trucking and the ports that are here and mm-hmm. people wonder, it's not just the gas prices. They're wondering why food in the grocery store is going up, why uh, the cost of, of goods is going up. And that's because if stuff comes into the port of Los Angeles and it gets put on trucks, those trucks are going to pass along. That business is going to pass along the cost to the consumer. And what's really interesting politically is that, look, I'm not telling you a secret, Michael, you know how blue California is very, very heavily blue. And it seems so that this is one of those issues where people are starting to, to crack and to turn a little bit. And even Bill Maher has come out and said, if California doesn't fix the issue like like crime, homelessness, and now gas prices, it could be that you can't count on California being reliably deep, dark blue anymore. There might be some cracks. I've seen so many stickers, and I know we've all laughed at them, and we've seen the sticker of Joe Biden pointing at the gas pump. I see those almost every time I fill up in very blue California. Mm-hmm. So I think people, and this is you know my just a, a survey, unscientific, if you will, this is a, a warning sign, I think, to, to Joe Biden and to Democrats that they're going to have to do something to look heroic in this way, especially because it's a midterm year, because people vote based on their pocketbook. And this is going to be a big issue, I think, moving forward over the next several months if they don't if they don't do something to stop the price. Well, there are a lot of there are a lot of new issues brewing um, as we get deeper and deeper into um, the 20s. And uh, do you think that Donald Trump is serving the GOP well by still focusing on the election of 2020 um, as opposed to talking uh, policy and specifics about um, all of these new issues, the war, uh, inflation, um, relations with China, relations with Russia, relations with North Korea, et cetera? How do you feel that's going to affect this cracking or you say or this change of issues and attitudes donald trump's donald trump's role in the gop going forward you know it's it's very funny you asked me that question i just had a a conversation actually with my co-host uh grant finchfield on am870 in los angeles about that and uh, look i am a trump supporter i would i would vote for him today if i could you know this i've I've told this to you and your audience before i i still feel very strongly about his policies i think they were successful and I would like to see them back. I think we've seen a substantial decline in um, how our country is run, uh, both domestic, from a domestic perspective and from a foreign policy perspective. That being said, right. I am also uh, my background is also in public relations. And so I would answer your question with a yes and no. I, I don't think that is that it is effective for President Trump to only focus on 
problems with the 2020 election moving forward. That's Jennifer Horn, co-host of the popular morning show on KRLA Los Angeles, AM 870, The Answer. Coming up next, a conversation with one of the leading talk radio voices in the Peach State. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison Wrap. Bernadette Duncan spent 26 years as a radio talk show producer. In her new book, Yappy Days, Behind the Scenes with Newsers, Schmoozers, Boozers, and Losers, she shares her adventures in the trenches of big-time talk radio during the changing backdrop of America's pre- and post-9-11 realities. This exciting story includes Bernadette's impressions of the quirky celebrity talk show hosts whom she served during her career. Larry King, Sally Jesse Raphael, Gil Gross, Tom Snyder, Lou Dobbs, Charles Osgood, and more. It's full of anecdotes about hundreds of high-profile guests from media, show business, and politics. Also quirky, ego-driven, and neurotic. Yappy Days, behind the scenes with newsers, schmoozers, boozers, and losers, an analytical look at the media, journalism, and the complex nature of ego. Get it now at Amazon.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap. One of the major topics of conversation this week has been the Senate confirmation hearings for President Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Joining us for Perspective is Talker's Heavy 100 talk show host, Martha Zoller of WDUN, which serves all of North Georgia out of Gainesville. I mean, I think I don't think there's any surprise in um, any of that line of questioning, any of that. Um, I, I did think going into it that Judge Jackson's biggest, biggest weak point of her judicial record was going to be some of the sentencing that she had on uh, cases involving children, as well as her representation of uh, Guantanamo Bay uh, detainees. Now, I think she did better on her answers related to the Guantanamo Bay detainees than she did on her answers on the cases related to children. But either way, I think she's going to be confirmed. And I think this is, while the questioning is hard, I don't think it's not, they're not digging into her, you know, ninth grade dance partner and what was written in her yearbook and that kind of thing like they did with Kavanaugh. So um, I think all in all, it's going to be a better thing. I did find the most interesting exchange, though, was between Marsha Blackburn and her when Marsha Blackburn says, can you define a woman? And she says, not in this context. And I, I, I'm not a biologist. I thought that was a really bad answer. Maybe she had a different way to answer the question. But if because she's not a biologist, she can't answer what is a woman, then any question outside of law, she shouldn't be able to answer what words mean. So I just thought she didn't handle that one very well. If you were in her situation or if you were in your own situation and, and you were facing this, how would you answer the question if somebody said, Martha, what's your definition of a woman. So p- 
probably the reason why I didn't get elected to Congress is I'm always straightforward <laughs> when I answer questions. So, um, and that's coming up on 10 years ago that I ran. Uh, and so my Facebook feed is filled with reminders of that campaign oh right now. But I would have said, because I think there is a biological answer to what a woman is. A woman is uh, a human being with uh, XX chromosomes and uh, is female at birth. I mean, you could answer that. That's a true statement that doesn't criticize anybody else. That doesn't say anything about anybody's gender identity, but it answers the question of biology. And what's the interesting thing about this whole kind of crazy world we're in and up is down and left is right and all of that is that hospitals are starting to have to go back to answering what was your sex at birth? Because it does make a difference in how you're treated medically. It does make a difference in lots of different ways for people to know how you were actually born. So you can't just say you're something and then you are. Um, you, you have to understand that there's nuances even in something like that. What's your take and what's the, the general vibe of your callers and the people in your community about the number one topic now for five weeks, the war in Ukraine? Uh, I think that the people that are looking at all of this um, are really important uh, because this is a situation, this is a war like we haven't seen since World War II, and um, it is somebody that is over, that, that crossed over a border without provocation, and I'm stumbling over my words because it is so horrific mm. to look at this because this is something we really haven't seen in a very long time. It is something out of the dark ages, uh, not just in terms of uh, the fact that we haven't seen anything like this since the 40s, which, you know, is not really the dark ages, but it is sort of the dark ages in, in as much as it really seems incomprehensible that reasonably civilized people could wreak so much harm, destruction, pain, devastation and death upon other human beings. Um, well, it, and we're seeing it in real time this time. I mean, yes, of course, there were newsreels and all this kind of stuff when World War II started, but it wasn't in real time. And you have, you have on the one hand, Zelensky, who is managing the social media side of the war, as well as appears to be putting up a pretty good fight and telling his story and really has, has rallied the world around him. I mean, even more so than I think it would have been in under normal circumstances. And then you've got Vladimir Putin uh, looking like uh, actually making Mitt Romney look really smart because he talked about Russia being the problem. And it does kind of look like the foreign policy of the 80s right now as far as what we're dealing with. Well, it, it is it is showing Russia in a very different light, and, and it's having an impact on how we assess our relationship with, of course, Russia, but also with China. Um, the, the whole complex relationship that the U.S. has with China is constantly being reevaluated and um, reassessed under the spotlight of scrutiny. Any thoughts about that? Yes, and it does look like China is taking note. You know, there, there is, is Putin is saying that there is this better relationship between him and China. And China's giving a little bit of words about that, but they're also giving these messages like, okay, maybe we're going to back away a little bit. Then you've got this parallel story of the Iran nuclear deal where you, we've got the United States working with Russia sort of to try to get this deal with Iran. And you had Democratic Congress 
congressman sign a letter. I think there were 10 to start off with. I don't know what the number is now to say, look, we're not on board with this because right now with what they're doing, we should not be uh, doing anything with Russia. We shouldn't be doing anything to help them. In fact, I've even talked to a group of young people and we've had some callers call in and say, why didn't we start these sanctions while they were amassing people on the on the border? Because everybody knew what he was going to do. So there's been a rallying point between liberals and conservatives all sort of seeing this war the same way, which is kind of interesting. Uh, closer to home, how are the folks in uh, your part of Georgia handling the high price of gasoline? Well, it's come down a little bit because our governor signed a gas tax repeal. So it's come down about 30 cents, which has been a big help. Uh, but we also, since George is the center of the political universe, as we know, of uh, former President Trump is coming to Commerce Georgia on Saturday to campaign for his candidates. And I think it was a, he didn't help us at all in our runoff in January of 2020. And I don't think he's going to help us now. That's Martha Zoller one of North Georgia's most popular radio personalities heard daily on the great WDUN in Gainesville. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. President Biden went to the big NATO summit in Brussels this week with America's allies and a lot hanging on the line. Joining us now is our Washington correspondent, the executive director of the D.C. radio company, Victoria Jones. So tell me, Victoria, has uh, has this trip that the president made to Brussels and NATO uh, brought back any memories? Perhaps you've had such an experience when you were uh, covering the White House as a senior correspondent? Yes, I was a White House correspondent actually for nearly 14 years. So during George W. Bush's administration, and he went to Brussels for a NATO summit in February 2005. And this was a very different kind of summit in terms of the logistics, the setup, everything from this hastily convened summit right now. How other, and and what other ways uh, is this different than what you experienced? Yes, well, the one in 2005, we were briefed by Condoleezza Rice, who was then National Security Advisor, a few months before in 2004 about the upcoming NATO summit. So that's one thing. So these things take about six months to put together because all the countries in NATO want to decide ahead of time what they're going to discuss and pretty much what the outcome's going to be. This particular summit that happened this week came together in 10 days. This is crazy stuff in in diplomacy. Things don't come together in 10 days. This is literally on the fly. This is like you calling your friend up and saying, hey, Joe, you want to go and get a beer? So as somebody who follows presidential activities, what's been your impression thus far? We're having this conversation late on Thursday to timestamp it so people understand what we know and what we don't know. Well, one thing it does tell me is that The United States and President Biden, even though he's not very popular here in the U.S. right now, has some clout because in 10 days, NATO, the G7 and the EU, sovereign countries in their own right, all came together. They all agreed. So it says to me the allies are united, at least as far as it goes, with regard to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They don't like it. They don't want it. They're not having it. 
I don't know how far they're prepared to go in stopping it, but they're really, really ticked off. And so they all responded and said, yeah, we'll come together in 10 days. That's astonishing. That's for a start. And secondly, you didn't have any major dissent from people saying, oh, no, I don't agree with that. We shouldn't do it that way. Let's do it this way. That could happen with a hastily convened thing like this. People didn't do that. That's astonishing. Also, Biden said, throw Russia out of the G20. Uh, that's, that's pretty big. Yeah, yeah, it is big. It's interesting. This is an unexpected result. This is collateral damage that uh, Vladimir Putin, I don't think, counted on. I think he thought that this was going to expose the cracks in NATO and uh, Biden's inability to bring the world together and NATO's inability to be cohesive. I think this has come as a surprise to him. And um, it shows if, if in fact that's the case, it shows very, very poor calculation on his part. It goes back to something you said a couple of weeks ago on the program that um, he's in a bubble. He's isolated. He's surrounded by yes people. And um, it. Um, it, it, it could be shocking, as well as, of course, a lot of the other things that um, we're discovering about Russia that's being exposed. Yes, it could be. Uh, we're hearing they've lost between seven and 15,000 soldiers, which is a considerable amount. Nevertheless, they do have the ability to continue grinding down these cities in Ukraine for a long, long, long time. And that may well be Putin's strategy. And we shouldn't we shouldn't underestimate that. And he has no compunction about killing numerous, unlimited numbers of people. And he will have no compunction, I'm going to say this, about using biological or chemical weapons. He will, I'm not saying he's going to, he will have no compunction about doing it if it suits his ends. Denying it, if he wishes, or saying that somebody else did it. Yeah, the old false flag thing. Not to mention, I mean, I wonder how much compunction he would have if push come to shove, uh, he um, opts for nuclear weapons, um, you know, under the guise that they're, they're tactical, you know, field weapons as opposed to the stuff that blows up big cities. Um, that would be a disastrous result. And yet NATO has to be discussing that um, because it really comes down to whether NATO is going to be on the doorstep of, uh, of the Russian army uh, yes. as, as Ukraine could likely fall eventually, as you point out. A very good point you make that we shouldn't take it lightly just because he's having a tough go at it. The tough go at it could be what makes him even more desperate, like a cornered rat, and uh, opt for biological weaponry or even nuclear weapons. Yes, because he sees the West, the West as weak. He sees the West as weak. So he believes that there is a point at which the, U the U.S. and the West will not go beyond that. Yeah, we're going to do all these sanctions. Yeah, we're going to put the NATO may put more soldiers on the Eastern Front. He doesn't really think they'll use them. He also, I, I think, from what I'm hearing, uh, believes that if he does decide to put a toe into another country or something, that People aren't really going to dare go there. He believes that by being a real bully, people are going to be afraid. He thinks 
that being a tyrannical bully is effective. And so far, he's right. As uh, the the greatest generation begins to pass into history, one of Putin's observations or or theories must be that uh, today's Western Europeans are not going to have that memory of Hitler, of that big war machine and the the madman at the helm, and and the 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 march the marching into Poland and the fall of France. I mean, can you imagine? When France fell and the Nazis are marching down the Champs-Élysées, we see pictures of it, is that this is rekindling history and memory for a new generation of Europeans. Yes, and I'd say he's completely wrong. Why does he think that Poland immediately offered MiG fighters? Because Poland remembers and Poland hates them. It hates it, it, The hatred is right under the surface Everybody remembers. Everybody remembers. Everybody. My nephews who are in their late 20s, they've seen all the war films. They remember. They remember the war films. They know it's real. They remember their grandparents talking about it. They know it. Every village in England and in every country I've ever been to in Europe has a war memorial. That's former senior White House correspondent and current executive director of the D.C. radio company, Victoria Jones. Coming up next, a trip to Ukraine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison Wrap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, D2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap as we discuss the hottest topics of the past week in the national conversation. We caught up this week with Ivan Penchikov, national editor of the Epoch Times newspaper, covering the war from Ukraine. Describe your situation. Well, we're, we're you know, a few hundred miles away from the front lines. Uh, Lviv is in western Ukraine. But we are not far from, from the bombings, from the, from the long-range missile strikes. So... The first day we arrived in Ukraine on March 13, there was there was a big missile strike, several missiles, uh, on a military training facility just no- north of Lviv, uh, the Yavoriv military training facility. Um, and then uh, about a week later, uh, less than a week, the, the airport was struck 
um, on the other side of town. So we we're seeing we're seeing missile strikes here as well, even though we're far away from the, from the front lines. When you say we, are you with a um, a unit of reporters? Are you by yourself? Um, what type of um, company are you with in terms of your your personnel and your support system? So we have a print and a TV team. So a total of four journalists. So I'm the I'm the print reporter. There's a photographer who works with me. Her name is Charlotte Cuthbertson. And for our sister TV network, NTD News, uh, we have Dan Scorbatch uh, doing the stand-ups and the reporting and the, and the cameraman. His name's Lei Chen, but we gave him a Ukrainian name, uh, Igor, uh, which is quite popular here. So how would you describe the atmosphere? Have you been talking to Ukrainian uh, people? Um, and uh, what are the latest stories that you've actually been covering? So, yeah, we try to talk to all kinds of people, you know, taxi drivers, we go to the train station to talk to the refugees fleeing from the east. We travel to some smaller cities um, uh, outside of Lviv, uh, like Truskavets, Ternopil, Ivano-Frankivsk, uh, to talk to people there. As far as the, the general mood of the people, it's very positive overall. Uh, some people are already talking about what's what they're about their plans for when the war is over. Uh, everyone's optimistic on the Ukrainian side that they they're gonna prevail in the conflict. Um, the mood's more somber when uh, when talking uh, when talking to refugees. Obviously, um, we've spoken to people uh, uh, who who fled hard hit cities like Kharkiv, uh, Trostanets, um and we, we've heard some really, uh, you know, re really tough stories. Uh, at the leave train station, we spoke to a, a volunteer who works in a hall dedicated to women with small children, female refugees with very small children. And she herself lost uh, a family, uh, six family members in a single missile strike uh, in the eastern Ukrainian city of Sumy. Uh, they were, you know, uh, they had the their bags packed and for five days and ready to go, just waiting for a safety quarter. And when uh, Russia and Ukraine negotiated one, they were ready to leave the next morning. Uh, but you know, uh, shortly around around 11 p.m. the night before they were ready to leave, uh, a single um, missile blew up their house and killed uh, three boys, their mom, their dad, which is this woman's brother. Uh, and her mother. That's awful. Uh, but you do get a sense that even though they're facing this this terrible, um, you know, very frightening and ultimately potentially overpowering military force, the Ukrainians are still optimistic that they will prevail. Yeah, that that's very much the case. Even when talking to people fleeing the the violence and the destruction, they're just saying, you know, they'll they'll come back the day this thing is over, and they're just just waiting for the day. Um, uh, you know the the, the war the, the war ends, and as far as people, you know, in Lviv, this is the unofficial capital of Western Ukraine, both culturally and just a it's just a, a hub for um, uh, for economic activity and also a hub hub for the refugees passing uh, on their way to Poland. Um, you look at the streets here, you talk to the people. It's it's as though there's no war going on. The, the mood's very positive. Um, and and yeah, there's uh, there's just this uh, positivity or you know this spirit of unity, I guess, uh, among the Ukrainians. 
uh, that, that they're going to prevail. And everyone's doing, I guess, what they can to support the Ukrainians who are actually doing the fighting uh, in the east. Do you have any insights as to um, the Russian military? I mean, it, it, is there a surprise that the Ukrainians have been able to do as well as they've been doing? Um, what insights do you have as to the Russian military machine, which basically around the world, the the impression is that it's not living up to expectations. In other words, that the the Ukrainians are embarrassing the Russians. Is that true? It, well, it's very hard to get to the truth in this conflict because it, it, both sides are putting out information that's often misleading and you know it's hard to get the real numbers on things. Obviously, the thing that the war has taken much longer than I think the vast majority of people, observers, experts expected because Russia has a giant, highly advanced military uh, which has had plenty of experience over the past you know uh, couple of decades in Syria and beyond. Um, so what's happened in Ukraine is certainly a surprise. Um, as far as the you know insights and real numbers, it's really hard to get anything. Um, uh, to, to pin down a real a real figure in this war because the war and uh, the, the information war is as as hot and uh, chaotic as the the actual uh, you know actual war on the front lines. Do you attribute some of that to the modern uh, day communications? I mean, in the here you are covering a war, an old fashioned military ground war, in the information age, in the you know the digital era. Um, do you think that um, the new the old warfare set against the backdrop of the new digital era is makes it prime, makes it um, difficult to know what's fact from fiction because of how easily it is to spread propaganda. Yeah, and also because how important the public perception of the war is to both sides. So both sides have lots to gain by you know with with misinformation, disinformation, false information, um, and. Uh, you know, arguably, both si both sides have have had you know uh, practical examples and practice with this uh, before the war. Um, and it's as a reporter on the ground, it's it's very obvious that um, that the well, at least you know we're surrounded, we're we're deep in Ukrainian territory. There's no Russians here, or at least you know not, not that I know of. Um, but access to you know take, taking a photo on the street is sensitive. Um, we've been stopped and told, "Hey, why are you taking photos and having having our ID check IDs checked many times?" And you know, even when we arrived to a bombing, within you know an hour or two of it having happened, the it's it's very hard to get close and get actual footage or pictures of what's going on because the, the, the Ukrainian military has you know is under strict orders not to let the press close to any military objects missile strikes etc you mentioned before that um, one of your reporters you changed the name to a Ukrainian name to Igor your name is is Russian Ivan um, uh, Penchikov yeah. um, have well, before I before I ask my question uh, I, I I know you are an American and um, have been with the Epoch Times for a decade and that you went to high school in New York um, what is your background were you born in the U.S. or were you born in Russia um, what is your personal background if I may ask yeah I was born in Russia uh, in 1984 in a, a rundown post-communist city uh, called Ivanova. I came to the United States in 1999 and became a citizen about 10 years after that. Um, 
so I consider myself an American now. I've lived, you know, most of my life in America. Um, and uh, it, well, what's interesting is that the we have uh, I'm the Russian or you know uh, R Russian origin uh, person on the team, and we have a person, the reporter for NTD, was born in Ukraine, um, and our families are linked because I'm married to the to the NTD reporter's uh, sister, who's a Ukrainian. Um, my family, my mom and dad, uh, are uh, I would say like Russian nationalists. <laughs> Uh, and and uh, my my colleagues' family are Ukrainian, you know, Ukrainian nationalists, uh, you know, people who love their countries. Let's say they they're not into politics, but they love their countries. Um, so we have a sort of a unique perspective into the thoughts of um, of the Russians and the Ukrainians. And we've we've you know we've had a chance to speak to family here as well. Um, so that's the I guess the sort of the cult cultural background to, uh, to the reporting work we're doing. What is the feeling among American Russians about what's happening now, or is there a, a feeling that could be, you know, generalized at all? Yeah, it's very, the, the most uh, generalized thing I can say is it all depends on what television channel they're watching. Oh my. Because, because opinions about, uh, about the war are entirely formed by how, you know, by what, what the, the media the person turns to. So my dad watches watches Russian television, and everything that like he says sounds like the, the same things that uh, they say there. Um, and you know the other way around. Uh, my my colleagues' parents, they you know they they have their sources of information, and they talk differently. So the media is playing a massive role in how people perceive this war and what's happening. Can the Ukrainians tell, uh, from what I understand, uh, that ethnically? Russians and Ukrainians are, by and large, the same people um, of, of, of Slavic origins, um, very much like people in the United States and Canada, you know, uh, similar people ethnically. Um, can people tell a Russian from a Ukrainian if they don't know their name or know who they are? Not visually. Um, I don't think you could discern visually who, who is a Russian and who is a Ukrainian. Um, but generally, people in Russia know uh, don't, don't know very little or, or know Ukrainian uh, language. Uh, and Ukrainians tend to know both languages. So if a Russian is in Ukraine, um, people will know from the first couple of words you say, basically, that you're a Russian. How long do you plan to stay? Uh, we're here till the 28th. Um, and we'll make our way out to, to Warsaw after that. Potentially regroup in the in the U.S. depending on what's going on with the war, and, and might come back again. And in conclusion, what personal feelings do you have about this that you could share with us being there? Because actually, being there is so different than watching it on TV and hearing it on the radio. Uh, what what message can you give our American listeners um, as uh, as an American reporter on the ground in Ukraine? I think the most surprising thing to me is how how hard it is to tell that war is going on here here in the west of Ukraine. We've been to many cities, spoken to people, to mayors, to cab drivers, to just about everybody, and it's uh, everyone knows, of course, that there's war in the east, but in the west you couldn't tell. And um, being in the U.S. without seeing things in the ground, you know, the perception is just uh, much different. You know, there there's just stress, fear, thinking that. You know, this the, the entire the entire nation is in a state of war, 
but the action actually is just isolated, you know, to the front lines. There are lots of obviously very, very tragic, very uh, horrible things happening in the front lines, like Mariupol, Kharkiv, etc. Um, but Ukraine is a very large country, and the West is, you know, it, it is basically in a state of peace beyond, you know, beyond some signs of war, basically, like uh, block posts on the road and, you know, reinforcements in some of the cities, etc. So I guess it's a message of hope. People are very positive in the West that they're going to win this war, and, and Russia hasn't made it this, this you know, to here after after you know three what what's what is it that's going on in four weeks now yes so yeah ivan uh thank you for your time and uh, we all send our best wishes to you hope everything goes safely and um uh, we thank you so much for uh, the good job that you're doing uh, safety to you give our good regards to your colleagues okay thank you michael thank you for having me that's ivan penchikov national editor of the epoch times newspaper on the ground in Ukraine. The invasion of Ukraine is creating a global crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen since the darkest days of the Cold War. If you're of a mind to contribute to the beleaguered Ukrainian people, please beware of all the scams out there that have popped up to exploit the situation and the kindness of people. Contact the American Red Cross. To do that, go to redcross.org donate to find out how to give safely and effectively. And that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap, an overview of the national conversation, looking back at the week of Monday, March 21st through Friday, March 25th, 2022. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week, including the ever-lurking unknown factor, and that could be scary that unanticipated surprise story that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I can be reached via email at michaelattalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, please visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Wrap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Rap is a production of Good Phone Communications presented in association with Talk Media Network and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. <laughs> <laughs>